This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is the Ave Explorers Lenten mini series. My husband joked the other day. He said, "Can you believe that Lent is over?" And I said, "No, it's not. It's not over." And quickly looked at the calendar on the kitchen wall, and sure enough, we were a couple days away from Palm Sunday, marking the beginning of Holy Week, the final days of Lent. And I turned to him and I said, "What happened?" And he said, "Well, you know, we're in a global pandemic and quarantine, so I think all sense of time and space has kind of been lost." And we both had a really good laugh because that's not a sentence either of us thought we'd ever speak in our lifetime. But then it it really did occur to me that, I mean, Lent is done. We're just a couple days away from the start of the three holiest days of the year, the Sacred Triduum, and then we enter into the season of of Easter, the celebration of Christ's resurrection, his victory, his defeat of death for us. I don't know about you, but I think for a lot of us, this was the strangest Lent we could have ever Lented, the Lentiest Lent, as we joked a few episodes back, a Lent that brought challenges the likes of which many of us would would never have imagined, masses suspended publicly for the safety of priests and congregants, opportunities to watch more Catholic content online than I think has ever been created before, priests and bishops getting remarkably creative to be able to bring Christ to their people from parking lot confessions to drive through pick up your palms to Eucharistic processions through neighborhoods in the back of pickup trucks. But regardless of whether or not this has been a strange Lent and is perhaps going to be an even stranger Holy Week, there are some things that will always ring true about the three holiest days of the year that we are quickly approaching. That Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then of course the victory of of Easter Sunday will forever hold such power and might because of the symbolism, the things that we do, the prayers that we say, the actions of the people and of the priest, the way we enter into one long liturgy starting on the Thursday evening and and not really even ending until the, the final blessing on the Holy Saturday Easter vigil night. What we see throughout the course of the Triduum is a snapshot of salvation, is a a telling of the story of Christ himself who came to win victory for all of us. And in the same way that every day of Lent, we've taken it a little bit at a time, day by day, bit by bit, not messing up so much as just getting back on the horse on the days where perhaps we need to recalibrate ourselves with our fasting and our giving of alms and our prayer. But when we, we launch ourselves into Holy Week, when we, when we enter into the mystery of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, the Easter Vigil celebration, and then the Easter Sunday itself, what we see is our faith on display in the most profound way. Now, of course, this Holy Week and this Triduum celebration will be vastly different for all of us. Most of us will tune in to the Masses being offered, whether from our parish a diocese, or even at St. Peter's Basilica, streamed live worldwide. Some of us will read the readings with our families and pray vespers. A few of us will make our way to parking lot masses where we won't be able to receive communion, but just the act of gathering in the parking lot will bring us solace. It's not going to be the same. But yet we can still take advantage, I think, 
of the beauty and the depth that these liturgies offer us and learn about the history and the, the mystery of these three holy days to where even if we're not present in the church as we may have planned or thought a few weeks ago, we can still be captured up by the beauty of what the sacred triduum is, of what Holy Week is, of what this Lent has hopefully been for us, leading us into this divine celebration of the victory of Christ. When we mapped out this season, you know, I, I knew the people that I wanted to talk to, the Ave authors that I knew would have something to say about Lent, and my first choice for this week, and fortunately he said yes, was my dear friend, Father John Burns. I think Father John might be the smartest priest I know. Um, no offense to any of the other priest friends of mine who might be listening to this, but I really think Father John takes the cake. A doctorate in moral theology, um, a priest who never fails to amaze me with his, his preaching and his ability to explain difficult theological concepts in a very understandable way. The work that we've done together has often been in youth and young adult ministry, and so it's been a real privilege and gift to get to watch him explain these things to young people who are on the journey of faith, trying to understand why we do what we do. And, and Father John and I, when we get together and we chat, we tend to turn into theology nerds, and we shove our glasses up our noses, and we, we dive into the text. So fair warning, this episode's a bit longer than most for our Lenten series, but that's because Father John just really gives us a beautiful teaching on the power and the mystery and the history and, and the depth and beauty of the, the three liturgies of the sacred triduum. So I highly recommend um, listening to the whole episode. Now, I've done something a little different for our final episode here of the, the Lenten miniseries. I've broken it down into chapters, which just very simply means that if you want to skip ahead to a certain timestamp, the timestamps are listed down in the show notes, and you can listen to that section of the episode talking about Holy Thursday, then Good Friday, then, then Holy Saturday, and then, of course, Easter Sunday. So hopefully that makes it a little bit easier to break up rather than maybe listening to it all in one fell swoop. Uh, you can listen to a little bit each of the, of the three holy days that you find yourself um, at home celebrating with your family longing to be in the church. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode and this conversation with the smartest priest I know, Father John Burns. Father John, thanks so much for coming back on the Ave Explorer show. Um, today, you and Sister Miriam's episode is the most downloaded and the one that people tell us all the time they keep re-listening to. So thank you for, for taking the time then and taking it now. Um, I want to launch right in because this is a, a Lenten podcast that we've been doing, kind of walking through. You can't mess Lent up. Now we're in like the Lentiest Lent ever. Um, but really talking about this week that we're in, which is Holy Week, um, it looks very different for a lot of people across the country, but we know that the three days coming up at the end of this week, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, are the holiest days of our year. So from the Father's heart, as a priest, teach us a little bit about um, these three days. Tell us what, what, what do they mean, what's the significance, why should we care, um, why should we go if we have the chance. What, just give us kind of the overview of the triduum. Yeah, that's it's it's the overview of the most important thing that we do. You know, I mean, we really say that the highest point in the whole liturgical year is, is Holy Week, and especially the the Triduum. 
So I'm glad we get to talk about it here. And I think, man, it's it's one of those things as a pastor, you always uh, want your people, you, you really want people to take Lent seriously because when they take Lent seriously, they're ready to enter into what it's pointing toward, which is the triduum. And when people really enter into the triduum, they over and over again, they tell me it changes everything about the way they pray the whole rest of the year. Because through the year, we're always talking about, you know, the Paschal mystery. We're talking about Christ's sacrifice, the institution of the Eucharist. We talk about these things. But the church in her wisdom asks us to, to enter into those mysteries, it, not just by a, a quick mention, not just by like a, a morning prayer, but for an extended period of time to enter deeply into those mysteries, basically to to retrace the lines of God's activity as he saves us, Mm -hmm. which is not just a historical reality. It happened once in time, but it's happening live again and again, over and over every time we pray and every time we enter more deeply into the sacred mysteries. And so what's cool about the Triduum, one of the things that's cool about it is it's not, it's like really one kind of liturgy. You know, we have Holy Thursday, Good Friday, uh, the Easter vigil, and then um, the celebration of Easter on Sunday. But it's really like stretched out. It's one prayer. Uh, and you can't really like go to one part and not the other. You, you, you can, surely. But it's designed to be integral. That like you don't finish, you finish the Mass on Holy Thursday without a final blessing. Yeah, and you yeah. begin on Good Friday, just right away, you jump right into the prayer. Right. Uh, and then you move into the Easter Vigil on, on Saturday night. Because it's one, it's one action that's drawn out over days. And so the church's wisdom is that we would sit down in the middle of that mystery that's unfolding and be forced to ask what's different about this. And what am I, what am I meant to learn about the way that God has saved me and is, is doing the very same thing right now through this liturgical act. Yeah. So I, I love that, that it just, it's, it's almost like we're walking the stations of the cross in almost in real time. Um, entering into that garden on Thursday evening, sitting there at the foot of the cross on Holy, on Good Friday. Um, did I say Good Thursday or Holy Thursday? The, the days <laughs> run together because like they you do. said, it is one big moment. So, so let's talk about Holy Thursday, institution of the priesthood, um, first mass, right? Jesus's farewell party, as my mom calls it. Um, <laughs> we actually have in, in Cut, say, you know, Cajun world, we have this image that always floats around of Jesus at the last supper table with crawfish dumped out. <laughs> no way. That was Jesus's big party. Um, and then, of course, we get the washing of the feet. So tell us a little bit about kind of the beats of Holy Thursday, the big moments that we pay attention to and that bring us closer to Christ. Yeah, Holy Thursday, right? It's the, it's the, we as priests, we celebrate that as the anniversary of the priesthood yeah. because that's when yeah. Christ instituted not only the Eucharist, but also the priesthood. And um, the the liturgy calls us to remember and revisit the washing of the feet. And that applies, you know, there's a a way of reading that um, to to understand that as the beginning of the ordination rite, um, that that, uh, the Old Testament priesthood began with a washing and Christ is washing the feet of his disciples, his apostles to make them priests. But, but additionally, like in, in Jewish, all of, all of Jewish religion, a washing is a, is a cleansing of something that's unclean to invite it into, to invite the person, especially into communion and relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. So like what we're seeing there is Christ's work of uh, taking something that is, that is unworthy and making it worthy, uh, namely us, you know, mm-hmm. his people, and inviting us to recognize a profound invitation into a new type of relationship with God, a new covenant mm-hmm. that he speaks of just thereafter at the table. But it's, it's the initiation of this new covenant the forgiveness of sins. And so there's this very hopeful, permeating reality that we don't know his name uh, at that mass, at the, at the celebration of Holy Thursday, which is we witness Christ's activity of, of forgiving sins and thereby making us worthy to enter into this 
much more profound and intimate relationship than people had ever known before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the collect of that mass uh, is so beautiful. It, it refers to the Eucharist as the banquet of his love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he prepares us to, to, to not just share in that banquet, but to be fit to share in that banquet. Yeah. So we can sit down at the table and be like, not only have I been invited here, but I, I'm made worthy to be here. Like I belong here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm at the table of the Lord, which anticipates the final, the supper of the lamb at the end of time, which is heaven. Yeah. So heaven's really breaking into to earth all the time in the liturgy, yeah. but you see it real profoundly on Holy Thursday. Yeah, I mean, I, I've really gotten into bread baking lately because when you're stuck at home and you have flour yes. and yeast, that's what you do. Um, and I was I was kneading some bread yesterday and I was like, man, Jesus really meant it when he said that he's the bread of life because of the work that it takes to make bread and then the patience to let it rise and then the flavor and how it can enrich us in this unique, there's nothing better than that home-baked bread and that, that slab of peanut butter on it. And I, this is a weird thing to say about Jesus, but that, that he literally gives us the thing that took effort himself. Yes. The, he gives us the thing that took patience to understand what he was saying. I mean, it, it, it was very Eucharistic needing the bread that my family will eat this week. Yes. And back up even a further step. So I haven't done bread making, but I've been making wine and mm, actually have a yeah. vineyard that my sister and I planted with a buddy. And uh, on both the bread and the wine, before even we intervene upon um, the pr process with yeast, et cetera, the, the reality of the wheat and the grape, you yeah. know, in order to get to the place of having bread as a possibility, the wheat has to be uh, crushed, yeah. ground. The yeah. grape has to be, has to be crushed. And so there's this element of like what Christ is doing at the table there is taking um, bread and wine, which both came from a, a different substance uh, and had to enter into a new form by being crushed and then having something active within it uh, change it. Well, the wine in particular, it's unleavened bread at, at the altar. But, but in both cases, you have something that was crushed and broken become something new and then he makes it something supernaturally new. Yeah. So there's this real, like very important natural imagery behind bread and wine that is supernaturalized as he makes it his body and his blood, yeah. which speaks into like the, the movements of the Paschal mystery with crushing. We'll come to that later. I'm sure. Of course. Of course. So it, Holy Thursday kind of just abruptly ends and we process Jesus out of the church into whatever area the church, the different parishes set up and put Jesus in a garden um, my whole life, the way Queen of Heaven does it is we process all the way out of this very modern, very, uh, very 1970s church. And we go all the way around to the day chapel, which is set up in this beautiful, I mean, it, it mm. smells like a garden because they bring so many flowers in and people cram in and Jesus is there and we sing, stay with me, uh, remain here with me, watch and pray. And it just kind of fades out. What's the significance of that? Like, why do we process with Jesus through the church on the way out? And the church then literally becomes empty. I mean, it's just a, it's just a room now with pews and an ambo and an, and an altar that's a, and an empty tabernacle, which is the saddest thing <laughs> in the world. Um, so what, why do we do that? Yeah, it's that, it's of course, it's that commemoration of Christ after, after they finished the last supper, right? They go out to the garden um, and they went out singing hymns with him. And that's where he had the profound moment of, of grappling in his humanity with what's coming. You know, when he asks, Father, let this chalice pass from me, uh, if it be thy will, but not my will, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, those moments when Peter and the apostles keep falling asleep while he's praying and Christ comes back. He says, could you not remain with me for one hour? 
And that, that's where we draw the tradition of the holy hour from, that Christ was explicit about an hour, about spending time with him in the garden, mm-hmm. in the midst of the agony of his passion, that we would stay awake, that we would be attentive, that we would watch and pray, and even be at his side. You know, there's a tradition of talking about consoling the heart of Jesus in his own suffering in the flesh, of course, in, in his divinity. Um, he doesn't necessarily need in the same way uh, from us that consolation because he's the eternal triune Godhead. But in the flesh, he invited the apostles to be with him and to be attentive and to be watchful. So we go out to the garden. There's always an altar of repose. Ideally, it is set up with flowers, a place where we sit and we contemplate the fact that he went to a garden um, which has deep biblical imagery coming from Genesis, the beginning of everything. He goes back to a garden uh, where in the garden disobedience first reigned and broke into creation. He goes out into a garden, grapples in his humanity with his fear of what's to come, and then chooses obedience to the Father's will or, or manifests and demonstrates it for us in a manner that ought to make us think, okay, he's in the garden because he's restoring a garden and he's pointing us onto the garden of paradise. Yeah. In the midst of the Trudeau, he's inviting us to pray there with him, to, to yeah. keep watch, to be a presence, to adore, and to anticipate both the suffering and the joy that's that's coming. Yeah. And so that, that church, that's where Jesus stays in that garden. Um, we wait, we watch, and then Good Friday arrives. Um, yeah. Good Friday, which, I mean, as a kid, I always struggled to call it Good Friday because it seemed like it was bad Friday, but it's Good Friday. Um <laughs> Let's dive into that. There's, there's kind of three big things that happen at the Good Friday service, liturgy. We don't call it mass because there's no consecration. Um, the only day in the year that we don't have mass set, right? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And like you named before, or I think the most heartbreaking reality that is meant to break our hearts is you walk into church. If you come in, often churches are open all day on Friday before and after the service. Right. And the, the tabernacle's empty. And it's just... It's just like, oh, and it's even more compelling, the empty tabernacle following the service yeah, because yeah. we've entered into like the next phase of commemorating and, and re-celebrating. But um, yeah, it's it, another thing striking about that day. So we enter the empty church in silence typically, and uh, and we have the, the veneration of the cross. We have the passion is recounted where we enter back into the celebration. But it begins with the priest and the ministers um, reverencing the cross, uh, reverencing the altar before the cross is even there. And they are called to lie prostrate on the, on the ground and even take off chasuble and shoes mm-hmm. as a sign of just like the sacredness of what we do and our humility. And to lay on the floor for a minute, a silent reverence of the altar and the empty sanctuary. Uh, and then there's the adoration of the cross. And we call it adoration of the cross, which is interesting, you know, mm-hmm. it's not just, it's veneration, um, which is really the technical term, but it's the only day of the year that we genuflect to the cross at the end of the liturgy. You, you don't genuflect to the tabernacle. There's the blessed sacrament's not there. We actually genuflect to the cross, which mm. tells us that, that there is a, an element of adoration here. We're adoring uh, the instrument upon which Christ reclaimed all of creation, you know, the, yeah. the new tree of life, uh, reestablishing something that was shattered from the very, very beginning. And it's that uh, the main, the centerpiece of the liturgy, the celebration is these people, when everybody's invited to come up, and, and venerate the cross by a genuflection or a kiss or placing a hand on the cross. And that's a place where we priests are really privileged. It would be uh, gross to film it, but you kind of want to film from your perspective or that of the ministers, mm-hmm. because you see each person coming forward and, and they've already entered into Holy Thursday. They've recognized the suffering of Christ. And now they've heard the passion proclaimed. Mm-hmm. And then they come to adore the cross and the number of people that are crying yeah. or, or just kind of like almost uh, shaken, ashen-faced and then wide-eyed, like in awe as you see them from where you're sitting, the priest, you see them one after one after the other 
mm-hmm. just kind of coming to discover and realize exactly what Christ did. Yeah. And, and noticing like, man, I, I often forget that or I take it for granted. It's something we talk about all the time. Like when you enter into it with your heart, it's agonizing to consider the length he went to, to make yeah. it possible for us to live and not have yeah. to die. And that's, that, that's the heart of that liturgy is just watching people yeah. and inviting people to open their hearts and just venerate the cross and, and reverence his victory and the cost that it was for him. Yeah, a few years ago, I, I um, was the photographer for all of the Triduum services at my parish. And um, that's not my skill in life, but I have a camera and they were like, hey, we need you to take pictures. Um, and it was, I was, the where I was situated was able to get shots of people going up. Um, and not like super zoomed in, so we weren't right in people's faces, but there's this one moment where there was a, a lady wheeled up in a wheelchair and she couldn't stand. And so she just kind of hugged the cross. Like that was her moment of veneration. And it was so profound to think her suffering is being united to his suffering. And every single person in this church gets to witness that. And then watching kids go up with moms and dads in, I mean, squiggly, squirmy, but for that second, there's kind of this pause because there's a, Jesus is, is, he's not here, but he's here. Um, And we get to honor that in this moment. Yeah. Good Friday ends in a very stark way, the same way that Holy Thursday ends, where the, it, the way we do it at our parish is the, the priest and the ministers and the altar servers kind of gather around the altar and kneel and then just one by one walk out. And it's haunting because it's like, wait a second, we're Catholics. We line up, we sit, stand, and kneel together, and we're just ending? Like, we're just... And, and so what are those... Because I know there's some pretty powerful closing words to this, Um why do we end that way? I mean, it just, it's a dot, dot, dot. It's a continuation. We know what's coming next, but it's abrupt. It almost yeah. hurts. It's meant to. That's the point. You know, we prayed, typically we pray the reproaches, which are a series of, of very ancient prayers um, that we kind of reflect on the way that Israel has failed and we have failed the Lord. And yet the Lord is always trying to pull us back and, and invite us back. Um, the, the, the liturgy itself ends, you know, you're supposed to leave the cross in the sanctuary. There should be candles attendant to the cross. Mm-hmm. And that should be like, it's set up so that if someone comes in later, that's the only thing they see. And those right. leaving, it's the last thing they see. Again, the tabernacle is empty. And the church leaves us kind of hanging in this suspense. It says, all depart in silence. Um, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to be terribly sad yeah. that day. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a passion and a sorrow that we invite liturgically for the sake of entering more completely, including affectively into what's coming. And a part of celebrating the, the joy of the resurrection is that we would totally lament body and soul. We emotionally even would enter into sadness. And so the liturgy ends with this, this kind of aching silence with, again, this reverence to the cross. Um, there's, a, there's a little prayer at the end um, where we talk about the hope of the resurrection, the pardon that's to come comfort given. Um, but, but it really is, is designed to like, so we remind everybody that, that there's hope coming, but we pause and say, but, but that's not yet. <laughs> within, within the chronology, as it were, of the triduum, that's not here. That's not for today. Today, we fall with Christ to the ground and we rest with him in the tomb. Yeah. So that movement out of that liturgy enters into the most most sacred reality that we we sit in the tomb. Christ has died, and we sit in the tomb with Him. Yeah. And and something in us is supposed to enter into that death. If we don't follow, you know, I, I pray about this a lot lately, and it's been something really beautiful. It comes kind of segues back to the thing, sister, and I talked about with the healing realities. But Christ's movement into the resurrection has a pattern, mm-hmm. and uh, it involves suffering of injustice and betrayal. 
and crucifixion and death and then entrance into the tomb and sitting in the tomb in the darkness, in pain and death, descending into hell and then the resurrection. And so when Christ says, follow me, he doesn't just mean follow me on the earth, do the things I did, come after me physically, but he means retrace the, the, the whole of the reality that I established for you. And that entails undergoing the suffering of injustice. Yeah. It entails the act of obedience. It entails a certain death and even sitting in that pain and then out of that death, of course, um, the resurrection. So mm-hmm. really the, whole, the evening of Good Friday and all of Holy Saturday are these profound invitations to, to revisit our own death, not just the looming death at the end of time, but the death at the end of our time, the deaths we've suffered by being betrayed, yeah. by being rejected, by being beaten, by being hurt, and to go there with Christ. Because what he's doing as he descends into the tomb and into hell is he's vacating the power of that place. Yeah. Uh, Aquinas talks about like the, the light, when he descends into hell, um, it's with a light that can't be quenched and with a, a saving grace that cannot be extinguished. Mm. And so he's, he's vacating all of the pain and the power of death that we've endured. Um, and so we can't be afraid to fall with him into the earth on Friday and to believe that he's the one. It's not us. We don't pick ourselves up. He's the one who raises us up. And so the, in, the liturgy invites us to this like very profound interest into suffering, not just Christ, but really it should be our suffering with Christ's, which is why we venerate the cross, to put our pain on the cross. Yeah. And then we fall with him to into death and sit there for an extended period of time. It's an invitation to feel our feelings. Um, yes. And to not like we don't walk out of. And yes, the, the thing we tell Rose all the time is good guys always win, but there still has to be a battle in the middle of that. And, and it's OK to watch that. It's OK to feel that. Um, and to know that he's fighting that battle. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and he, to your point about the feelings, I mean, this is, I got to, I was blessed in my doctoral work to spend like a year studying the emotions, you know, and like yeah. the, the, the theology of Christ's entrance into our flesh means he experienced and endured all of the emotions yeah. and in the midst of them learned how to endure them well. So there's a good sorrow, a redeemed sorrow. There's a good anger, a redeemed anger. Mm-hmm. And he uh, invites us, we're invited in the journey of our own healing to, to let ourselves fall into those places and, and learn about down in the dark, learn about what happened and what's binding us up at the surface in those places. And that's really good Friday and Holy Saturday. Like yeah. where, where have I suffered profoundly? Where am I kind of afraid of that suffering? But then to go there with Christ, you know, the, the, the remedy of his passion, that's what Aquinas also calls it. It's a remedy. <laughs> it's the yeah. remedy of yeah. the passion that what seems unremedied and unremediable in our lives is, is potentially remedied if we'll let him, and we'll go into it with him. Like nothing is beyond his reach. Yeah. Even his own hell. There's this great thing I was just reading. Um, there's this, this thing, Christ, you know, we, we have this question, like what happened when he went into hell? And yeah. uh, we know that he remained, uh, he, he, Christ is a, united to the Holy Trinity is a member of the, the Holy Trinity. He doesn't lose his knowledge or his love of the father. Um, but what he loses or what the father withdraws from him is the joy or the delight that follows upon that knowledge and that love. Mm-hmm. So, he remains united perfectly to, to father and, and spirit and, and knows and loves perfectly mm-hmm. those other persons, the father in particular. But uh, there is a, a certain experience in the flesh of that joy being withdrawn, the joy that follows from those things. And so we can say then, I think, that his experience of hell, his experience of, of uh, desolation would be perhaps even more profound than our own because um, we only have partial knowledge and partial love of God. It's not perfect. And when we experience the withdrawing of God, it's painful. 
But Christ knew perfectly and loved perfectly the Father at all times he does. And so he knew that the joy that follows from that. And then that joy was withdrawn, the, 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 the fruitio beata, it's called. And with the withdrawing of that, the experience of, of the pain, the, the, the lamenting that we see on the cross of him, his experience of that pain, uh, scholars have said his hell in that moment would be, and in that experience, would be much more deep than our hell ever could be. Yeah. And so what he's doing is he's descending to the deepest place possible in emotional suffering and establishing a floor there beneath which we could never fall mm-hmm. uh, because we'll never really know the same deprivation, at least not in the flesh, the same deprivation that he experienced. And so yeah. when we fall into emotional pain, like Christ has already fallen further and yeah. from there rose up. So we, we can never fall too far. Yeah. There's a, there, yeah. I mean, he established the ceiling, so to speak. And there's, I mean, he hit rock bottom in the most yeah. profound way. So Holy Saturday then is rock bottom, um, empty church. There's kind of a silence in the earth. It's Mary's saddest day because her son is gone. Um, and sitting in the tomb, there's not a whole lot to do on Holy Saturday. Like I always would feel guilty as a kid because we'd like, you know, get the house ready for Easter Sunday or dad would mow the lawn or mom would be preparing the Easter ham. And, and, but it it always felt like we shouldn't really be doing anything. Like we should just kind of be sitting here, sitting Shiva as the Jews would do and like really embrace the sadness right now. But yet the world continues to turn. How, how can we, what, what does Holy Saturday mean as we get to this Easter vigil in the evening time um, and then launch into Holy or launch into Easter Sunday, excuse me. Yeah, no, you're Katie. That's like a great insight at, that we ought to be still, you know, that yeah. day. And I I'm truly like in terms of very practical, actionable things, one of the most practical things we could ever do in our faith is decide to get serious about Lent and serious about the Triduum. And take seriously the movements of the liturgy because they instruct us about everything. Mm -hmm. And then very concretely and specifically to block off that time from Holy Third, from a Good Friday celebration, the the liturgy there all the way through Saturday and to, to plan to shut our phones down, to minimize work, to minimize interaction really, and to sit with the scriptures and to Mm -hmm. sit with lamentation in the reality of what we're celebrating as a church. That would, that truly makes all the difference because there should be, the more we can focus on, what the, the church is breathing into us through the liturgy, the more it will affect us and, and convict us mm-hmm. in the realities that are there represented. So yeah, Saturday is a day of the tomb, you know, when, when Christ is in the tomb. And I often will pray with our lady on that day. I think it's a very profound thing because we should experience some form of um, sadness and maybe even despair, but it's a, a despair that we know is not actually despair because we know what comes on the other side. But I'd like to pray with, you know, what was happening for the apostles who, um, you know, experienced probably temptations to think all was lost, uh, very likely thought maybe they had uh, mistaken Jesus. Maybe they'd made a mistake leaving everything and following him. Maybe all was, all was lost now and there's a failure. And the experiences there of doubt and fear, isolation, desolation that crept in. But the whole way through, you have Our Lady there, right? And she's not able to sin. And so she's not also able to, like, reject God in the fullness of despair and give up all hope. So we talk about Our Lady as Our Lady of Hope, and there has to be this way that she endured Holy Saturday, lamenting, brokenhearted, uh, weeping, I'm sure, surrounded by the apostles who were, who were rending their garments. But she had to be, like, remembering the promises of God, you yeah. know? And there had to be this experience of, like, yeah, but he's, God is, God is good to his word, you know? And he said he'd rise, and I don't know what that means. And the way that she had to sit there, just, like, she had to be such a stable foundation of hope, 
even if it wasn't like a joyous hope or an right. overwhelming sense of like, hold on guys, he's coming. Mm-hmm. But I love to pray about then when Mary Magdalene comes back, you know, she finds the empty tomb and then she comes running back. Yeah. I have to think as she announces to the disciples on that day, you know, that the tomb is empty. Uh, everybody probably still is confused what to make of it, except for a lady. And she'd sat in hope, you know, all of Saturday. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be this moment of like, as she heard Mary Magdalene lady had to be like, there it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew it. I yeah. knew it. That's my son. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. It's a steady sorrow. It's it's not that that sorrow that leads you to despair. It's the sorrow that, okay, something's going on here and it hurts, but I know that, you know, there's a song. It hurts so good, right? There's 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 something <laughs> yeah. that will come from this because he is honest and true. Yes. And that's our, like, that's our takeaway, right? For the whole reality of the Paschal mystery is that Christ accomplished that once and for all, but it's being accomplished over and over again as we repeat the journey of, of mm-hmm. being crushed, of, of seemingly dying, of having to wait and steep in the death and then rising again through our little trials. Yeah. So the message of Mary's perseverance there and what we learn as a takeaway from all of that is we're going, there are going to be times inevitably where we feel like this is too much, where we're going mm-hmm. to die or God has forgotten us, or he's not true to his promises, or he misunderstood those promises, and they're not actually promises, whatever. That's Holy Saturday. But coming out of that, like, we always have to hold on to this, like, the persevering church, yeah. which is embodied in Our Lady, that the hopeful church would be like, I just have to cling to the mantle of Our Lady, because over and over again, the Paschal Mystery is teaching me that Christ triumphs over every evil, yeah. even and including the evils that are currently seeming to crush me, the mire of the deep out of which I, I seem, yeah. to, seem to be drowning. So that Holy Saturday of sitting in stillness, clinging to Our Lady, um, and hopefully becomes a day of stillness for for many of us who often use it as Easter Sunday prep. But th- before we get to Easter Sunday, which is you know the pink and the, the the eggs and all the all the fun secular stuff that that celebrates new life, um, there's the Easter Vigil, the Sacramental Super Bowl. Um, that mm-hmm. kicks off with a fire that that launches us into ten readings that that brings us to often a short homily if the priest is merciful, and then into baptisms and confirmations and first communions and a couple of years ago I think the last Easter vigil I was able to make before Rose was born because eight o'clock mass with the two year old on a Saturday is not possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a marriage convalidation at the, so we had like all of them back to back to back. It was awesome. Wow. Easter Vigil is you. I mean, it's it's the most important moment in our church. Um, why? Why do we care so much that we have a four hour mass? That that we flood the churches? That we start in darkness? We light candle? Like what's what's all of this? Ha- what's happening? Yeah, we're, what it is is a vigil, you know. And uh, we we use that word vigil all throughout the year and and keeping vigil, but also vigil masses. The liturgy, the actual wording in the Missal is that this is the mother of all vigils, Mm. meaning like every other vigil takes its shape and form from this one. And And what is vigil but like keeping watch, you know, the watchful virgins that Christ speaks about looking to the horizon in hope and knowing something's coming that's going to break this night Mm. Uh, keeping watch for the dawn and for the rising of the sun. I mean, packed with natural imagery that, again, is supernaturalized and made uh, eternally important by Christ's action, that this mother of all vigils, what we're doing is keeping watch in the night, uh, blessing the new flame and holding the flames of faith and listening to the scriptures. There's this progression through the scriptures, even the church lights are changing uh, all through the liturgy of yeah. the word. Well, from the beginning, all the way through the liturgy of the word, um, the, the, the movement of the, of the, the vigil of vigils of the Easter vigil is toward, of course, 
the celebration of the resurrection. And ideally, like it would move into midnight or happen, you know, so that like even the clock hours, we, we were done celebrating uh, on Easter day, early, early Easter day. But it's the whole, the whole nature of that long liturgy with all the scripture, the celebration of the sacraments is to really pull the entirety of the liturgical year together and thus the entirety of our, our faith, which is rooted in the liturgy, into one place. Mm-hmm. And, and in that place, what are we experiencing? But God's fidelity to his promises seen in the old covenant and fulfilled it and then brought to a great fullness, the most, the greatest fullness in the new. And then we're celebrating the inbreaking of that new covenant into creation as, as life bursts forth. Uh, the, the womb of the church bears fruit, you know, baptism, the font is unsealed. We, we bless the baptismal water. We baptize, we confirm even other celebrations, the liturgy, first communion for a lot of these people who've just come into the church. The fullness of life is supposed to be kind of embodied in that place under the banner of, again, Christ's victory and his saving grace. And so if we've gone through the movements of the, of the other pieces of the, of Holy week and of, of the triduum, then we get there. We're exhausted. Um, we're, we're pretty tired. It's late at night. And so you you do like, you kind of get drowsy, but what you're celebrating, especially when the Alleluia is announced, yeah. you're celebrating like all praise to God who indeed mm-hmm. has won. If you've never read the, in the breviary, the liturgy, of the hours in the breviary, there's a, um, the office of readings every day. We do two long readings, one from scripture and then one from a saint or a sermon. And on Holy Saturday, every year, the second reading is from an ancient sermon on Holy Saturday. And we don't know who the author is. The thing is around the second century. It's the single greatest homily ever preached. <laughs> it, like it's a must read for every single person who believes, because what it does is it puts the whole, uh, the reality of Christ's victory and what he did when he descended into hell. And he, he ransomed even Adam and Eve. It says he's gone to search for our first parents and he draws them up out of hell and brings them into the light of the resurrection. So read that, the, the, the ancient yeah. sermon from we'll Holy link Saturday. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. What? My favorite part of Easter Vigil as a kid was always walking out and there was candy at the door. Um, and, and, and like my dad would always say, okay, just one. And we'd get home and I don't know how my parents pulled it off, but I don't know if they set it up. They would like put us in the car first and then we'd come back. But Easter baskets would be waiting for us on the fireplace when we got home. Um, and inside was always, you know, some sort of small Catholic gift and a, a piece of candy. Um, usually, you know, the bunny rabbit, all these, all these things, but Dad would always hand them to us, and he would just say, this is Jesus's gift to you. And I was like, wait a second. Jesus already gave me a gift. He rose from the dead. Like, that was a gift. That was gift enough. But I think the Easter Vigil is, it's such a gift of a liturgy because there's moment after moment where that hope that Mary had on Saturday is really shown to come to a full fruition. Um, whether it's that, that reading that you only ever hear once a year, but you're like, oh, yeah, that one. Or like our parish only sings certain songs on Easter vigils. So you're like, oh, that song. I, didn't, I haven't heard it for a year. Um, or Father makes that one cheesy joke that he only makes once a year. It's, there's so many just triggering moments of joy. And it's a weird way to put it um, that launch us into it's the on-ramp to the Easter Sunday celebration. Completely. And that's what we do. We're always doing with traditions as human beings, even right. in a natural and even a secular sense. Traditions draw us into deeper realities and help us to regularly celebrate them. And um, what's what's rich about liturgical traditions is they're pointing at infinite, eternal, supernatural mysteries. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, they're anchored in them and they're permeated by them. And so what we're doing, even little things like your, your dad's, your parents having an Easter basket with a, a gift, you know, that represents Christ as you come home. These little traditions are, are taking our humanity and helping us to involve every aspect, every dimension of, of what it is to be a human person mm-hmm. and orient that toward 
an invisible but a tangible reality, something mm-hmm. we can't quite fully see and, and don't yet fully embrace. And yet we, there is a certain fullness of our capacity to embrace it, particularly because of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. um, which is really what the vigil is about, like the Christ rose and then made himself available to us as he promised he would on Holy Thursday. Mm-hmm. So like on Easter, we're seeing Christ's fidelity to the Easter, to the Holy Thursday promises and, and to the word of his suffering on Friday. And so it's really just this, this deepening conviction about God's fidelity and not just that he's good to his word, but that he surprises our expectations. Yeah, uh, surprises us by his resurrected grace. Yeah, yeah. When I think so, that's a perfect segue then into, you know, Easter Sunday, which is the most well attended mass besides Christmas. And most Catholics, you know, we defend our pews to the death, except on Easter <laughs> Sunday when you get in and you just you hope you find a spot. But I think for a lot of us over the next few weeks or the past few weeks when this is airing. Um, but when we're recording for the next few weeks, we don't know what Easter is going to look like in the world right now or in the United States of America. We know that Jesus will rise from the dead. We know that we celebrate this reality. Um, but yet our churches might be empty on Easter Sunday because of this of this current pandemic. Um, even if they are reopened, I imagine people, I hope people flood back, but might be hesitant because of the fears. Um, Rather than talk about the significance of the liturgy, I want to shift for a moment and have you talk about how we can celebrate Easter in this COVID-19 world, where many of us might be spending Easter Sunday just with our immediate families in quarantine, might not be able to go receive the Eucharist, which is like the one day a year we're supposed to do it is on Easter Sunday, and um, it's going to be tough. Uh, how are we going to be able to cope with this? What are maybe some ways that we can we can still worship and celebrate yeah, I mean, there's, like you said at the beginning, there's no question that this reality of Lent 2020 is is the truly the length of Lent, at least mm-hmm. for us in this age. Like, we've never really had to experience being deprived of communion with others, being isolated, cut off. We've never had it like this before. And there's a holiness in that, in that, like, Christ himself had to endure so much uh, in the flesh, and he's inviting us into kind of a more profound sharing in his own uh, suffering in the flesh of rejection, of isolation from those who, who should have loved him, etc. But the, the resurrection, too, I mean, uh, this is going to be a challenge for all of us to really cling to hope and to believe, uh, as we've been talking about through this whole segment, to believe that God is who he says he is, he's true to his promises. And if, if you know, the case is that we can't celebrate with the community the, the mysteries of the sacred triduum, the paschal mysteries, um, then God has foreseen that. If that is what is the decision of the, of the church for prudence and safety and health, God has foreseen this. We, we presume he's going to guide, and we, we pray that all of our leaders will always be uh, men and women of prayer. We presume he's going to guide their deliberations and their discernments. And if it's his intent through them that we would not gather, he knows what he's doing with that. You know, mm-hmm. um, This quote that I keep coming back to through all this from St. Augustine, he says, God is so good that in his hand, even evil brings about good. Yeah. He would never have permitted evil to occur if he had not, thanks to his perfect goodness, been able to use it. And so the, even the apparent evil of being isolated in this time and, and even in the celebration of the sacred Paschal mysteries, um, there is a good that is at hand and that God is trying to offer to us and hold out to us. We just have to beg for the grace to look at God more than we're looking at um, what's causing fear and obsessing us. Yeah. You know, yesterday, my feed, I, I counted in my regular news feed the number of stories that were focused on, on yeah. the, the illness on COVID-19. It was 73 out of the first 100, mm. pulling from sports, pulling from restaurants, from wine, from economy, you name it. I was like, that's an obsession. You know, mm. This is occupying so much of our energy. 
And, and God is bigger than all of this. We have to be focused and prudent and real. But, but God is inviting us to look at him more and to attend to him, he who has already conquered every suffering and death and invites us through the darkness into the light. And so if Easter looks totally different than we ever expected, we can still enter into the scriptural mysteries, even the liturgical mysteries, whether that be uh, by online or by just praying with the prayers of the church, yeah. looking at the prayers of the liturgies themselves and meditating upon them, contemplating the, 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 the stations of the cross, reading the resurrection accounts, we are not impeded from entering into the power of the Paschal Mysteries. It may look different if we can't do so actively and liturgically the way we're used to, but even so, the mysteries have already occurred and are breaking into time now. Mm. We have to get creative. We have to be faithful enough and willing to, to simply look to the Lord first and foremost and allow him to expand in our hearts a mystery that's already sown there but he's going to water with, with a fresh type of grace because the circumstances have changed so much. He wouldn't have allowed this if he wasn't sure about how to use it. Yeah. We need to be hopeful and looking for that inbreaking of fresh grace right now. And it may very well be that this Easter is more painful than any other, but it might very well invite us into the resurrection in a way that none other ever has. Yeah, yeah. I keep thinking to myself in all of this, like, these live streamed masses or these, these talks that people are recording and sending out for free or, you know, the possibility of canceled events in the summer that are usually the spiritual battery recharging for so many young people. You know, maybe the Lord is inviting us into a, um, a dark night of the soul so that when we do come out on the other side, there's a renewed fervor and, and desire, um, especially because we know the statistics of how few Catholics in America believe in the real presence, especially because we know that, that the numbers of disaffiliation are only ever growing. Maybe this is the moment where I, I keep praying over and over again, um, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of the faithful and the curious, because mm -hmm. I think so many people are really curious of what, what work is being done right now. Um, I mean, we talked at the top of this before we started, you know, the official conversation yesterday, our pastor got in the back of a Ford pickup truck and drove Jesus around the entire territory of his parish. It started at two o'clock. He came best. Our street was one of the last streets at eight 15. Um, the man never left his knees. He is not a young man. Um, the, the second truck had a statue of Mary. The third truck had father Trey praying the rosary. So he probably prayed dozens of rosaries yesterday. <laughs> um, and our street, which is normally a pretty active street, especially because people have been in quarantine and we've got kids running all over the place, socially distanced, of course. And, um, normally just, there's just a lot of activity, even at eight o'clock at night, everybody stopped and Jesus drove past. And I know for a fact that the people next door are Catholic and the people across the street are, but I don't know about the other people. I'm assuming they are because you don't kneel down for Jesus unless you believe that's Jesus, unless maybe there was kind of this stirring in the heart. So before we started recording, this is on my mind last night, before we started recording, I, I popped, popped over to check on Tommy and Rose in the backyard and Tommy said that he had a social distance conversation with our neighbor, Catacorner, to us, who he's never talked to before. She's an older lady. He was just letting her know, if you need me to go pick up your groceries, I'm happy to. And she said, what was that thing that drove by last night? And he was able to explain to her, oh, we're Catholic. That's the blessed. Use it as a moment of evangelization. I think a lot of that's going to be happening. Even if Easter masses are only father with a camera in front of his face. Like a lot of these moments where the Lord is inviting us to share our faith in a new way at least at least i hope i hope so oh yeah i mean as we say like we know god knows what he's doing here and there's just i think that's you're naming a couple of good examples there of we're, we're recognizing how good we had it and maybe that we took it for granted yeah and, and and yet like we do know it's coming back we don't know when we'll be able to return to the way that we had things before but we'll never really go back to the way that it was before no and those it'll of us be who, pre and post from here on yeah. out yeah and holding on in hope 
that's a, a theological virtue infused in the heart. And hope expands the heart to believe and to cling to the eternal mysteries more perfectly. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be, I would like to think, uh, we're going to be better at celebrating what we celebrate and, and wanting everybody to know it because uh, we're, gonna, we're experiencing right now the thirst of Christ himself for love and for souls, as Mother Teresa would always put it. And that's going to, if we let it, that's going to lead us to want everybody to know how good it is. Once we return and we experience again, like, oh, Lord, I did not even know how much I could have missed you. And here I've missed you. We're yeah. going to want to share that with people. And that's going to have an effect. Surely we're going to lose plenty of people who are just going to close their hearts and their minds. But it's, if we hold on and persevere, this is going to convict us profoundly mm-hmm. in, in just exactly how beautiful is the Paschal mystery and the fact that we share in it as Catholics through the liturgy and through our prayer. This is going to as you say, before and after, we'll mark this down for good. Yeah. It's like a, a long distance relationship with Jesus right now. Um, yeah. And those are yeah. tough, but worth it. Um, Father, we could probably continue on for another yeah. hour and a half. It's always a joy to talk to you. Um, your video, we'll, we'll link it down into the show notes, of course. Um, I think my toddler is about to come running into the room. I think nice. I hear her down the hall. Um, she normally always pops in and says hi, but I'll, I'll edit that out. But tell us a little bit about your book. I know it's in the new parish book program from Ave Maria Press. Um, it is indeed. Yeah. Yeah, Lift Up Your Heart. It's a, it's a 10-day retreat for uh, anybody, really, who's just looking to figure out what the reality of heaven is and, and the reality of mortality. It's kind of a mm-hmm. fitting book. Just talk to somebody who's been reading it, was reading it, to someone who was dying, reading it on their deathbed to them mm-hmm. each day. Because it's about realizing our mortality and needing to make a decision in the present, how we're going to deal with the days we've got left. Like, am I living for heaven? Do I know what heaven is? Do I, do I want to do everything I can to avoid hell? How do I celebrate the blessings that God has given me in a manner that leads me to a, a more vibrant acceptance of heaven and a pursuit of that here and now? Mm. So it's based on St. Francis de Sales, who began his book with 10 meditations. I've taken those meditations and made them much more approachable to a 21st century audience. And yeah, mm-hmm. obviously made it available for the parish giveaway. Landscapes change without parishes. Yeah, but folks can still grab it. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, we'll link that down in the show notes. Again, thank you for your time. We'll be praying for you up there. Katie, thanks, everybody. And that's a wrap on the Lenten miniseries. Um, I think Father John really sums it up perfectly, telling us what these three days mean and, and why it's valuable to enter into them fully. And of course, gives us some, some opportunities and some tips on, on ways to appreciate the mystery of these days, even if we cannot physically be gathered in church buildings because of what's going on in our world. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this Lenten miniseries. All of the episodes will stay both on the Ave Explorers um, page on the website over at avemariapress.com and in the uh, the podcast app wherever you get your shows uh, apple podcast google play or spotify they will live in season three um, for the time being uh, but of course the ave explorers show exists well beyond just this linton miniseries we have um, our new series on art and architecture actually launching next week april the 15th which is the one year anniversary of when uh, notre dame cathedral burned in paris um, and we're driving a special teaser episode for that new season tomorrow um, so you get a, a, a bonus episode this week with Andrew Pettiprin. Um so hopefully you'll download that and you'll enjoy that you can sign up for that series at the link down in our show notes or just go on over to AveMariaPress.com and you'll find all the details
details on what we're doing to explore art and architecture in the life of the church. We also, of course, right now, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, have brought back some of our mental health series to help people cope with and, and survive um, in a mental health way during this very strange time. And so we've been doing a, a reprisal of some of our favorite guests from the mental health series. We've had episodes so far with Sister Miriam James Heidland and Roy Pettifee. And this Thursday, we have an episode with Leah Darrow talking about hope. Coming up after that, we have a conversation with Scott Weeman and then Tommy Ty talking about addiction and talking about family. So hopefully you'll tune in to all of that content, sign up for the new series on art and architecture, and continue to um, enjoy what we are creating at Ave Explorers. Please know that we are praying for you during this holy week, that we hope that you enter in as best as we can in the midst of this current uh, crisis, and that all of us are praying for you to stay healthy, to stay safe, and that we hope this content is bringing you a bit of light during this time. <laughs>